Amen. Take your Bible with me, please. Turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 in the Bible with me. Uh, This will be, this morning, the final installment of my series of messages on the life of the Apostle Peter. This is the end of this. Now, what was interesting to me while I was studying it out this past week the providence of God in this being the final message. The reason being that Peter will no longer be mentioned anywhere in the book of Acts after Acts chapter 15. This is the end of the historical account of Peter's life. We understand a few more details from some of the epistles, but this will be the closing of our series on the Apostle Peter. We met a man who was just a fisherman, kind of a common fellow in every way, a man who was a little bit rough around the edges, a diamond in the rough most certainly, In the Gospels, we met a man who was impetuous, who was rather self-willed. We met a man who, frankly, was quite mouthy at times and couldn't contain his thoughts. They were coming out his mouth. And we met a man that was frequently rebuked by the Lord, yet a man whom the Lord loved deeply. We met a man who sank into great failure when he denied Christ in the time of Jesus' trial. We met a man who knew what it was to receive the grace of God in forgiveness for his great sin and to have a rekindled vision of the purpose that God would have for him. But in Acts chapter 15, and I fully believe this is the providence of God because as long-term and even short-term members of this church understand, I don't really have a plan, okay? We follow the leading of the Holy Pastor Monty, what's your five-year plan? I don't have one. By the way, I'm not going to be a slave to any plan, okay? That makes it impossible for the Holy Spirit of God to work. A plan is a servant, not a master. I don't have a five-year plan, and I certainly didn't plan this sermon to take place this morning. But as I was studying it out, I saw the hand of God. You say, why, Pastor Monty? Because I want you to listen very carefully. We have many people in our church, many people that are visiting our church and have come repeatedly that don't necessarily come from a Baptist background and haven't really seen how a Baptist church functions. Today, out of the scripture, briefly, I'm going to explain this, and then this evening, I want to encourage you all to come back, both members and and non-members, visitors, whatever. I want you all to come back this evening because you're going to see Acts chapter 15 in real time this evening in the evening service. It has been announced for several weeks that we're having a special business meeting to discuss a matter, an opportunity that has come before the church. And we're going to, Pastor Monty, why don't you just make a decision and decide on it and be done with it. I cannot do that. I don't have biblical authority to make a unilateral decision of that nature. Well, Pastor Monty, why doesn't a committee or a board somewhere just make a unilateral decision? They cannot do that. They don't have biblical authority to do that. See, a Baptist church runs on something called congregational government. Pastor, you're the highest human authority in the church. No, you would be wrong. The congregation is the highest human authority in an autonomous New Testament church. Now, I understand that a lot of churches today are run by committee, by a little oligarchy, whether they call them the trustees or a board of elders, whatever they may call them. I understand that. Those models are wholly unscriptural. I made a pretty big statement when I said that, but I'm going to demonstrate that from Scripture. Churches in the New Testament were independent churches, and they were autonomous meaning that they were self-governing churches, and there is a structure presented in Scripture that is crystal clear. 
Acts chapter 15 plays out that structure for us. Now, it began with a problem. It began with a problem that they were struggling with, and Peter had already struggled with. How many of you remember a few weeks ago when I talked about the vision that Peter had in the book of Acts? You know, the sheet descending and the bacon and all of that. (laughs) You remember that. It had to do with food. You're going to remember it. I know you're Baptist people. You're going to remember this, okay? (laughs) Um, And Peter was told by the Lord in the vision, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And three times Peter said, not so, Lord, because it violated his traditions as a Jew, especially the dietary laws. And he pressed against that change. And God insisted upon that change, not only to demonstrate that the Old Testament law had been set aside, and for a full theological explanation of that, you would look at the book of Galatians. But not only that, but to emphasize the fact that God was about to open the door of salvation, the gospel, to Gentile believers. And you will recall in Acts chapter 10 that following the vision, Peter was encouraged to go to the house of Cornelius. And the Holy Spirit of God said, and I believe audibly so, said to Peter, Peter, get up and follow these men. Go to Cornelius' house, nothing doubting. Don't doubt a thing about this. Just go and do this. (laughs) So Peter was beginning to put the vision together, which was what was happening. In Acts chapter 10, what happened? Peter preached the gospel to a congregation that Cornelius, a pure Gentile, an uncircumcised man, had put together in his home. And the Bible says that as Peter was speaking, they believed. And then the Bible says something interesting. They began to speak with tongues. Why did they do that? Because it confirmed that God had given the Holy Spirit to these pure Gentiles. Now watch, you had tongues on the day of Pentecost that demonstrated the veracity of the Christian movement. It was God's divine stamp of approval. You had tongues later on in Acts chapter 8, really the the receiving of the gift of the Holy Spirit by the Samaritans. That was the laying on of Peter's hands. That was kind of different from what happened in Acts chapter 2. But after the laying on of Peter's hands, because these Samaritans had believed under the preaching of Philip the Evangelist, (coughs) you had You had the manifestation that says, yes, Samaritans can believe. Then Peter took the keys of the kingdom one last time in Acts chapter 10 and opened the door to pure Gentile belief. And he preached the gospel and there was again the same outward sign that they had received the Holy Spirit. But you know, this caused a problem. This caused a problem with some at the church of Jerusalem. Because the church at Jerusalem was predominantly a Jewish congregation. They believed in Jesus as their Messiah, but there was a little group, a little faction within the church at Jerusalem that really doubted this matter of Samaritan salvation. But worse than that, they doubted the possibility of Gentiles? Now, wait a minute. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. We believe that, but, but are you kidding? <coughs> Gentiles are welcome to believe as well? And they said, okay, well, if the Gentiles are going to believe, this little faction said, then what they're going to need to do is submit, the males will submit to circumcision, and then secondly, what they're going to do is they're going to keep the Old Testament law. And these, this faction went so far as to say, if you won't be circumcised as a male, and if you refuse to keep the Old Testament law, ye cannot be saved. That's huge. That's huge. Spasmani, why was this such a problem? They were adding works to salvation. What are the works? Circumcision and law keeping. 
Now, Paul was very clear in Galatians, Galatians 1 and verse 8 that that is not the gospel. I want you to understand something. You are saved today by the grace of God alone, apart from works. Paul affirms this in Ephesians. For by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, listen to these words, not of works, lest any man should boast. Romans chapter 4 talks about the difference between works and faith. And when I believe and I trust Christ who died for my sins and rose again, when I accept him as my personal savior, that is the way I receive grace in my life. Grace always comes through faith. There are some denominations that teach that, well, Jesus died for your sins, but then there are certain things you have to do. May I say that that is a change to the gospel. It is not just a denominational difference, but Christ is the dispenser of grace, not the church. A moment ago, you watched two of our young people baptized. They followed the Lord in believer's baptism. It is the first commandment for a Christian after someone gets saved is to identify publicly with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as pictured in baptism explained in the book of Colossians. (coughs) Now, they follow the Lord in baptism. Let me make a statement here. Baptism did not save them. Very clear about that. Baptism does not save. Baptism is not part of the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul was dealing with an issue at the church at Corinth. And he said this, he said, well, he said, uh, he said God didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. In that statement, he built a wall between the gospel and baptism. Is baptism important? Yeah, it is. It's an indicator that you're following Christ. It's an act of obedience. It's a public testimony. I'm not downplaying the importance of baptism, but baptism is not part of the gospel. If it were, then that would give me as the pastor the opportunity to disseminate the grace of God through that baptism tank and to refuse the grace of God. Does everybody follow me on this? Any denomination that says that they have cornered the market on the grace of God and you have to be baptized by them in their baptism tank has violated the gospel. Salvation is by grace through faith. When I recognize myself as a sinner, when I realize I can't do anything to save myself, when I come to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross personally for me, when I place my faith and trust in his death and his resurrection, it is that moment that I am born again, it is that moment that the grace of God comes into my life. But in the early church, the Judaistic schism within the church of Jerusalem wanted to say it was very important that people would be circumcised. By the way, can you imagine that? That would make evangelism really tough. (laughs) Think about that? Let's not think about it anymore. (laughs) So Paul and Barnabas contended with this group that had come to Antioch from the Jerusalem church. By the way, a group of people not sent out officially by the church. Just a group of people, kind of ragtag. They had no church authority. Jerusalem church didn't send them. Paul and Barnabas argued with them in (coughs) Antioch over this matter. 
Then the church at Antioch had caused such a division, the church at Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas and others to Jerusalem, probably Titus, by the way, to discuss the issue with the apostles and the elders. We read about that in chapter 15, verse 2. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, that is, they had a big church fuss and disputation, they had an argument with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and the elders about this question. So they have a serious question The issue was the gospel. The issue was a schism within the church that could damage the gospel and particularly the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. The issue was that the church at Antioch, which had experienced approximately 14 years of peace and harmony, was now divided over this question, do Gentiles have to submit to circumcision? Do Gentiles have to follow the Old Testament law? That same type of thing is schismatic, as I mentioned a moment ago, in denominations today. So that was the problem. But what I really want to focus on is the process. So how did the church at Jerusalem, chapter 15, they call this the council of the church at Jerusalem, how did this process go down? Because actually, you're, you're going to have to figure it out in order to move forward. Paul had just completed the first missionary journey. This big meeting in Jerusalem, it happened between the first and second missionary journeys. If the church (coughs) decided that Gentiles needed circumcision and law-keeping, if the church came to that conclusion, well, then that would change the face of Paul's entire ministry, as we'll see in a moment. Uh, But if the church decided, no, 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 Gentiles are welcome to the grace of God, then that would open the door for further evangelism. This was a huge, big deal. So there was a process afoot. Paul and Barnabas were sent by the church at Antioch, along with several others, to determine this. They went, according to the scripture we read a moment ago, they went to the Jerusalem church where James, who was the pastor, see now, you say, Pastor Monty, did the church of Jerusalem have a number of pastors? Most certainly it did, 3,000 members strong. It had to, okay, no question about that. But James was the lead pastor. The church teaches that, or pardon me, the Bible teaches that it does not teach equal elder rule. Some of you know what I'm talking about. That's not taught in the pages of the Bible, okay? The Bible says that there is an especial elder, the one who is in charge of the teaching and preaching ministry, and then there are other elders. Today we call the senior pastor, the lead pastor, and the assistant pastors. That follows a biblical model, and I don't have time to get into all of the detail on that. But they they had the apostles, they had Pastor James, who was the half-brother of Christ, a penman of the book of James, and then they had another group, in determining the issue. Pastor Monty, who is that third group? The church at large. The members of the church. So someone said, oh, Pastor Monty, I don't believe in church membership. I do. I do. Because it's very important for people to have a voice in their congregation. It's very important for people who have committed themselves under the leadership of the Spirit of God to that congregation to have a voice in decisions that are made. Now listen very carefully. Not every decision has to come before the congregation, but some of them should in all rightful honesty. Some should. For example, you as a church in December, you'll get to vote on a budget, a church budget, okay? What do we do? We present a budget, and then we attempt to spend within the spending plan of that church budget, because you've granted the authority 
to the, the congregation grants the authority to the leaders of the church to spend money, okay? Uh, we're not all, oh, Pastor Martin, we got tons of money. Why don't you just go out and, and buy the church a hot tub? No, no, I can't do that. That's outside of the authority that is granted by the congregation. I hope everybody's following this carefully. So we have three voices. We have the voice of the apostles. We have the elders or pastors of the church. And then we have the church. Those three come together in the book of Acts to make a decision regarding a very important uh, problem. Theirs was a doctrinal issue But in the church at large today, most of the time we're discussing things that are of a practical nature. Does God want us as a church to do this? Does God want us as a church to do that? An opportunity has come. How do we discern the Holy Spirit of God? And in a moment, I'm going to prove to you from Scripture that this process is fully biblical. And when carried out, it results in the voice of the Holy Spirit in the congregation. Now, I'm well aware that some of you are like, Pastor Monty, I've never heard this before in my life. Let's break it down from the scripture, okay? The three safeguards, if you will, the three voices are the apostles, the elders, and the congregation or the church. These are voices that help determine an issue. They are safeguards for making the right choice and not giving the power to one group or individual in the church, okay? Very important safeguards. And I think that they are three tests for determining the leading of the Spirit. So let's look at the process, okay? The process, if you look at verse number six, look what the Bible says. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. The church at large had received them. Perhaps they had a big church fellowship. Now the apostles and the elders get together and they say, let's break this down privately. Okay, they were not excluding the congregation. They will include the congregation later. But they had a private meeting. Okay, so this is Peter's last appearance in the book of Acts. Look what happens in verse number seven. When there had been much disputing, so both sides got to tell their side of the story. Both sides got to speak. Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's reminding them of something that happened. What is that in reference to? Acts chapter 10. A good while ago, how far back in the history of the church was that? Probably eight to ten years previously, Acts chapter 10 had taken place. And he says in verse number 8, God which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them, the Gentiles, Cornelius' congregation, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, Jew and Gentile, purifying their hearts by faith. And then Peter says this, given the facts, now therefore why tempt ye God? To put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. So the first thing that was incredibly important in this decision that the early church had to make was the voice of the apostles. (coughs) Pardon me, the voice of the apostles. Peter just runs through the history. He says, the Lord enabled me, giving him the keys of the kingdom. You'll recall that. The Lord enabled me, first of all, to preach the gospel at Pentecost to a Jewish congregation. 3,000 were saved. Philip then went up later on to Samaria, preached the gospel. Peter went to Samaria to check it out. And what did he do? He laid hands on the converts and they received the Holy Ghost. Later, Peter is called to go to, and by the way, against his will at first, he was called to go (coughs) to Cornelius. 
Cornelius' house and to preach the gospel there. And what happened? They were saved and they manifest their salvation in receiving the Holy Spirit. So Peter says, let's just walk through this. Peter says, I wasn't convinced. You remember that? He had that vision. He's like, no, 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 not so, Lord, not doing this. He wasn't convinced at first. But then the Lord kept leading step by step by step and confirmed every part of the way. And what is Peter doing? He's giving his testimony. He, in, he introduces, by the way, something interesting in Acts chapter 15, verse 10. Peter says to this group, now therefore, why tempt ye God? What, what does that mean? What does that mean, tempt God? It means to push God too far. What he was saying was this Jewish sect who wanted circumcision and wanted law-keeping that this Jewish sect was pushing against God by denying the grace available in the gospel through Christ. They were saying, okay, get saved, believe on Jesus, wonderful, but now you have to do this, 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 and this, and 613 other thises contained in the Old Testament law, and then you'll be saved. He couldn't, he said, he basically told them, you, the Jewish sect, you're struggling to receive the simple grace of God. You're pushing against God. He gave a testimony as to all of the things that God had done. He also mentions, by the way, in verse number 10, something kind of logical. He said, you're going to put a yoke, a burden, that word is used again in uh, Galatians chapter 5, speaking of the law, you're putting a yoke, the law, upon the neck of the disciples, notice this, which, we, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. Why are you going to make them try to do it? None of us kept the law. What a brilliant argument. That's Peter's testimony. But there was a second apostolic testimony that came from Paul and Barnabas. Look at verse number 12. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. So essentially, Barnabas and Paul said, now wait a minute, we just got back from our first missionary journey. Boy, it seems like to us God is doing something very unique. And here's story after story after story, and we agree with Peter. This was the testimony of the apostles. Okay, now, you said, Pastor Monty, the early church was blessed because they had the apostles. Listen carefully. The apostles could, by fiat, do you know what I mean by fiat? By declaration. The apostles had the authority by declaration to say, this is how it's going to be, and it doesn't matter what you think. They did not do that. Why, why not, Pastor? Because the apostles would die. The apostolic office died with the apostle John. But it served as a witness in determining, a testimony in determining, should we or should, how should we view the gospel? Well, you say, Pastor Monty, that doesn't apply to us today because the apostles are dead. Listen carefully. You hold in your hands a New Testament. Your New Testament is the voice of the apostles. So the first thing we do in seeking to know whether or not something is the will of God is to listen to the voice of the apostles in the New Testament. Well, pastor, that should be obvious to every church. Well, not today. Not today. So so you have churches that are embracing levels of perversion and immorality that are clearly condemned in both the Old and the New Testament. And they are silencing the voice of the apostles by saying that the apostles' attitude towards certain things, the woke movement in general, that the apostles' attitude towards certain things was antiquated and prejudiced. 
Ladies and gentlemen, listen. You do not dismiss apostolic teaching. You do not get to pay. Well, Pastor Mine, that was just Paul had a bad attitude about that. Listen carefully. When the apostles speak, they provide the first test or testimony regarding the matter at hand. So the issue always at hand is this. Does this concur with the Bible? Or are we doing something that goes against the Bible? Or in embracing the culture, are we ignoring the scripture? That would be the first testimony. The second voice, the second voice is the pastor, the decision of the pastor. Look, if you will, at chapter 15, verse 13. The Bible says this, and after they had held their peace, so there's been a discussion, Peter, an apostle, Paul, an apostle, along with Barnabas, had testified. After they had held their peace, James, who was James? He is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was what we would consider to be an apostle of the second class, meaning that he did not travel with the 12 apostles, but he was a half-brother of Christ. He was the penman for the epistle to, to the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, the epistle of James. After they had held their peace, James answered, Pastor of the church at Jerusalem. They had more than one pastor, but he was the senior pastor. After they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, and that's, by the way, Simon, that is Peter. That's the Aramaic form of that word. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this, this is the pastor speaking now. To this agree all the words of the prophets. He's quoting now from Amos. As is written after this, I will return, will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and will build again the ruins thereof, and will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord. Listen to these words. And all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Now what was the point? The point of quoting from the book of Amos was this. It was a foretime, a long time ago, predicted that Gentiles would be saved. And Pastor James has listened to the argumentation. And then he's going through the prophets, and it's plural in that passage. He's going through the prophets in his mind, and he settles on quoting the prophet Amos, who says that there would be a prediction of Gentile salvation. And he's listening to the testimony, and he's saying this is a fulfillment of that prophecy that it was the intention of God not just to deal with the Jewish people, thank God for us, right? Not just to do, deal with the Jewish people, but to deal with the Gentile people and to call out a, uh, a people for his name. So this James, who's the senior pastor of the church at uh, Jerusalem, <laughs> he made a decision. Now what did he base his decision on? Here's what he based it on. Apostolic testimony. He cites what Peter just said. What else did he base it on? Scripture. Does everyone see that? Now, now, pause there for a moment. That means that the pastor is not a dictator. He is not autocratic in his leadership. Okay, because if he is, he's violated the three voices policy. The pastor then makes a decision, having heard the testimony of the apostles, understanding the scripture, and that essential safeguard helped to keep the church on track. He quoted the scripture. What, what are the conclusions they came to? Well, you can read about that in verses 19 through 21. But James basically said this of the Gentiles, quit troubling them. 
No one from this church is allowed to go down there anymore and stir it up among the Gentiles. They are saved by grace. We are saved by grace. Quit bothering them. But he said this, there are a few guidelines that we're going to give them for the sake of fellowship in a mixed congregation, a mixed Jew and Gentile congregation. He was saying this, we we don't want to offend unbelieving Jews to keep them from the gospel by Gentile behaviors. And he said, we don't want to offend Jews within the church who still hold to sensitivities concerning these things. And so he wrote some guidelines, drop down to verse number 20. James said this, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols. That is stuff that was offered and sacrificed to an idol, not to eat that. Why? Because the Old Testament said not to, that would be very offensive to Jews. And abstain from fornication, particularly they're most likely dealing with close intermarrying of family, which was forbidden in the Old Testament, but happened commonly among the Gentile people. From things strangled, that means things that were not properly uh, 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 killed, animals that were not properly killed, slaughtered, and the blood properly drained. And then he says from blood. All of those things would have been highly offensive. Now, they were practiced among the Gentiles. And James said, look, in order for people to get along in that church, the Gentiles need to curb their activity. Wow. Does anybody remember Romans 14? Does anyone remember 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10? Paul goes into curbing of activity. Now, by the way, these aren't laws. These aren't, well, these are the New Testament laws. These are not laws. These are guidelines that would serve to help unified fellowship in a mixed congregation. So James says this, we're going to leave them alone as far as the gospel. They're saved by grace through faith in Christ. They don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to follow the Old Testament law. None of that's necessary. But what they do need to do is promote unity within the church by refraining from certain activities that are common to Gentiles, which would be greatly offensive to Jews. So we have essentially the testimony of the apostles. We have the decision of the pastor. And then, very importantly, and you cannot miss this, church family, very importantly, we have confirmation by the church. Now listen carefully. These three voices are essential in determining decisions that are not settled in the pages of the Bible. You have to have all three in agreement. So, for example, Pastor Monty, the church voted that you're going to preach on this, 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 and this. You know what the pastor's going to say? No way, Jose. Not doing it. Not doing it. Why? I get my sermons from the Bible. Nobody tells me what to... Now, if you have a suggestion, hey, Pastor Monty, I'd love to hear a sermon about this, I may take you up on your suggestion. I love it when you give me suggestions. But I will never be told what to preach. Okay, I'm not that... that, that Pastor Monty, the church has voted, then you voted me out. Which is fine, you can do that. You know you can do that? You have to gather 20-something people together, sign a petition, name has to be in a piece of paper. So let's vote this guy out. You can call for a special election, you can oust me. Pastor, you shouldn't tell the congregation that. What if? (laughs) I don't know. What if I'll go start a church down the road? Okay. (laughs) You won't like that. (laughs) Just kidding. Maybe not. Okay. (laughs) Look at what verse 22 says. Because there's a third confirmation by the church. It pleased the apostles and elders, and I note the next words, with the whole church. Does everybody see that? With the whole church. 
It pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief of them among, among, among the brethren. What were they going to do? They were carrying a letter that delineated the decision of the Jerusalem council. They were going to bring it to the church at Antioch, and this decision had been made on the basis of three voices, three safeguards, three testimonies, the apostles, the pastors, and the congregation. (laughs) You'll note that. And what was the result of this? Look at verse 28, what the word of God says. Verse 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us. I want you to note that. At this point, at no point really has the Holy Spirit been mentioned that much in the proceeding. But the result of the proceeding, when the three voices are heard, the apostolic voice, which now is in the pages of the New Testament, the pastoral voice of leadership, and the congregational voice of confirmation, When those three voices are heard, James said, this is the voice of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what the purpose of the congregation is as far as Baptist, Jewish, Prudence, church government is concerned? Well, Pastor Mike, what's my part? Your part is to confirm the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean you have to vote yes. Don't misunderstand. Because if the congregation votes no on something, then that's evident that this wasn't of God. We believe that the voice of the congregation is the final voice to reveal the will of God for the church, period. And James went so far as to say, this is how we discern the voice of the Holy Spirit. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. The result of their process was the revelation of the Holy Spirit's will to the church. Whenever church silences any of the three voices... That church is not acting biblically and may be in danger of not following the Holy Spirit's guidance. You say, Pastor, why why is this so important a message? Because tonight we're going to have a meeting to discuss a tremendous opportunity, what I think is a tremendous opportunity for our congregation. I'll describe more of that, but I'll just say this. When the opportunity first arose, I was very much like the Apostle Peter. I wasn't convinced. Not so, Lord! (laughs) I wasn't convinced. And over a period of time, I've become fully convinced that this is something that must be brought to the congregation so that we can hear the three voices. What I just preached this morning, you're going to see acted out in real time in the evening service. I urge you to come. If you're a visitor, guest, I urge you to come and watch this in action. Besides that, there could be a big fight, and that's always interesting. (laughs) There better not be. (laughs) But truth of the matter is, I love operating on the basis of the New Testament. And you'll get a chance to see that. And the big issue here, the gospel. Not, Not tonight, not tonight. That's settled. But the issue here in the book of Acts, the gospel. Why is the gospel important? Because the apostles with one voice testified in Acts chapter 4 and verse number 12. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It is Jesus only, not Jesus plus baptism. Jesus only, not Jesus plus the Lord's Supper or sacramental or sacerdotal system. Jesus only, not the church membership. Jesus only. And the gospel is this, 
that Christ died for my sins and yours. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is settled. And it was settled in Acts chapter 15. And thank God, because salvation is available to all who call upon him. Father, I pray you'll take the word this morning. And help us, Lord, to really consider the clear process that you've given us for determining your will. Father, I pray especially if someone has come here and they don't know Christ as their Savior. Father, I pray that you would help them to come to know him today, to believe upon him. Lord, that issue of salvation by grace through faith was settled once and for all in Acts 15. An issue that arose because some, probably sincerely, felt that they needed to add something to salvation or perhaps curb the behaviors of someone, especially the Gentiles. Father, help them to know that there is a Savior who will embrace them, who will love them, who will forgive them, who will wash away their sins when they simply trust him as Savior. And for those of us who know him, help us, Lord, to grow and to understand the specifics of the Bible, we pray in Jesus' name. Stand with me, please.